0: if you have your Bibles tonight, open up to the New Testament. We're going to be in the very first book of the New Testament, in the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 5. And we'll read that here in just a few minutes. So, um, if I were to ask you this question, in your mind, what is the greatest need in the world today? What would it be? The greatest need in the world today, what would that be? Be. And while you're kind of letting that thought move around in your head, we'll, we'll get to that later. and think it'll become pretty clear as we kind of get through this. But, uh, so if, if you were here last week, you'll remember, or at least I hope you'll remember, if it was memorable enough, um, that we talked about the prophet Hosea. And you remember that uh, we talked about how God used his life as an illustration to teach Israel a lesson where um, God told Hosea that he wanted him to go marry a prostitute, Um, a a woman literally who would show herself to be unfaithful for the sole purpose of teaching Israel a lesson um, because they had been unfaithful to God. If you remember, God was like their... It's this picture of a husband and wife. God was their husband. They were supposed to be faithful to them in their, in their walk and in their deeds and all these things. And they had completely walked away from the Lord. And then God showed them this um, because... They were literally living very, very evil. They, were, um, they were a, had become a pagan nation. A nation was supposed to be holy. And because of this, God had warned them through the prophet Hosea, through this illustration of his light and the words that he spoke to the people, that destruction was coming soon if something didn't change. And unfortunately, they did not listen because, as we know, they um, did not heed the warning. And because of it, the, exactly what God said came true, and they lost their nation. And if you remember, I used that story last week um, from the Bible to remind us in this country, in this world, really, the dire situation that we are in right now, and, and just reminding us that this same fate could fall on our nation as well if something does not change soon. And as I said, you don't have to look very hard to see that our culture as a whole has very, very much turned away from God and His Word, the Bible, and the results could not be clearer. You know, our, our world, our nation, our state, <laughs> We are in a state of chaos throughout the world. You know, we're more divided than we've ever been in a long time. There's a growing uncertainty about the future, conflicts springing up all over the place, and I'm not sure about you, but I have thought about the world that my kids and my grandkids are going to have to grow up in, and I can tell you that it is becoming more worrisome every year that passes, and the indisputable fact about our world right now is we are seeing firsthand Satan's handiwork that is happening through the people that he has control of. Now, that's what we talked about last week, right? And, and the big question I kind of hit at the very end of last week that I'm really going to focus on this week is, can anything be done? Is it just a foregone conclusion that, that Judgment's going to come, and we're going to keep going down this path of evil, um, or is there hope? Is, is there a hope that on um, this trajectory that we're on right now that we can be redirected? Can anything bring change to this dark, dark world that we are in right now? And fortunately for you and me and the world around us is the answer It's absolutely yes, it can. However, it's only possible as we who are God's people, do our job and be the light of the world that we've been called to be as God's people. Because here's the reality, true change in this world, can it is, it is possible, but it can only happen through the power of God. As the power of God, through his Holy Spirit, comes into a person, helps them see the the direction their life is is on the wrong path, and helping them see the need for change, and one by one by one, every person that can be reached, that can be placed into the hands of God, this world can be changed. But it takes you and me to make that happen. Now, there's no doubt, as I said, we're living in dark times, but the, the amazing thing about the dark is this. Have you ever been in a dark room? Like just maybe the electricity went out and you're scrambling around trying to find a candle or a match or something so you can see where you're going. Isn't it amazing that in the darkest room, even in a room where you can't see the light even in front of your face, that if you just light one little tiny candle, it gives light to the whole room. Because light dispels the darkness. Light exposes what the darkness is hiding. And what is true of natural darkness is also true when it comes to the spiritual darkness that we're seeing in our world today. But if God's people would begin to shine the light of Christ, Jesus, that is in them, in us, this world um, as we know it would have an opportunity to see the darkness for what it is. Because light exposes what's in the dark, and the more Christians that begin to shine, the brighter the exposing becomes in the world around us, and it will help people to see. And as we'll see today, that's exactly what we've called, um, we've been called to do. And what we're going to be talking about today really is kind of the recipe as far as how we can make that happen in our lives. So let's go ahead and read our passage of scripture. We're going to be reading in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1, and it says this When he, speaking of Jesus, saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice, because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And in verse 13 it says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand and it gives light for all who are in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So our verses for today are the beginnings of what is known, or kind of been called the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus was kind of in the northern parts of Israel, and he was literally up on a mountainside. And this is probably his most famous speech, his most famous sermon, um, that is recorded in Scripture that goes actually from chapter 5 all the way through chapter 7. But today the passage we're going to be looking at is really what has kind of been really known as the part of this as the Beatitudes, Um, meaning the attitudes that we should be having in our lives is kind of the idea. And as we'll see, the reason these are so important is because when we apply these attitudes to our lives, what will happen is that we will begin to naturally show Jesus. That light that these later verses talk about will naturally start to come out in our lives as these attributes and attitudes are present in our life. And the result of that will be that um, the, you know, open doors will, will come and we'll have people probably coming to us wanting to know what this hope is inside of you. What is this difference that I see in you? And the reason I say that is because of the example of Jesus See, Jesus um, was a far different religious leader than anybody that the world had ever seen, Um, especially compared to the religious leaders of the day when this was written. Jesus was far different than these leaders then, Um, because these leaders that were there, these religious leaders that were known as Pharisees or a lot of the priests that were in Israel at the time, they really had a, I guess what you would call it, a a do as I say, not as I do, kind of holier-than-thou attitude, and they were very honestly, because Jesus Said it to him multiple times. They were very, very hypocritical in their actions and, and in their thoughts and their deeds because they were preaching a message they weren't practicing in their lives. However, Jesus was far, far different. Now, what's interesting is if you read the verses right before chapter 5, and I'm going to read them for you real quick. In chapter 4, 23 through 25, listen to what it says about Jesus. 'Cause it really leads into, into what we're reading today. It says now Jesus began to go over all, all over Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom. And healing every disease and sickness amongst the people. And then the news about him spread throughout Syria. So they brought to him all those who were afflicted, those who were suffering from various diseases and intense pains, the demon-possessed, the epileptics, the paralytics, and he healed them. And it says in verse 25 that large crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. And so what we see here is that chapter 5 is set up because Jesus has been following in his own life, what he's about to explain to these people that they need to have in their lives. that makes sense? So he's already practiced what he's about to preach, and because of that, it, it allowed him, it gave him an open door for these people because they flocked to him, because they saw something different in him than they saw in all the rest of these religious leaders. Because Jesus was not a hypocrite, he actually lived out what he was about to speak. He was compassionate and caring. He was humble and kind. He did not ignore the needs of the people. Instead, he met their needs. He didn't just preach God's word. He lived it in his life. And because of that, people flocked to him. In verse 1 and verse 2, we see that crowds of people gathered to listen to him. And because of his life that he was living, it gave him a platform, if you will, to speak into the lives of these people because he had built trust for them. And, and they, they believed and they wanted to hear what he had to say. And as I was thinking about this, this really is kind of a, helps the rest of this whole thing make sense and it's such an important lesson for us to grasp as God's people that before the people we're trying to reach will take us seriously, they need to see in us what we're saying. Does that make sense? Like, they, they need to see Jesus in us before we share Jesus with them. Because if not, we become very hypocritical and very ineffective in our witness for the Lord. Now, I understand that none of us have the privilege of being perfect like Jesus. I, I know I certainly am not perfect. Um, we're going to make mistakes. That's a given. But the question is, is, is our life showing Jesus. Even in our imperfections and mistakes, do people see something different in us than they see in the world around them? It's kind of the question and the idea. And what I love about these next verses, these Beatitudes, is that if followed by us and exemplified in our lives, it will put us in position to be the like we're supposed to be, and will put us in position to be influential in our world, just like Jesus was. You realize Jesus told his disciples, that they would do far greater things than he ever did? You think, how is that possible? Well, they had the power of heaven, and they had a lot more of them than just one man, right? And the same is true for us today. If we follow these things, we can accomplish incredible, incredible things for God in this world. And so all of these first, from verses 3 through 10, um, that starts out with a blessing, like blessed, and it ends with a promise for each one. Now, when it says blessed here, or blessed, or however you're used to saying it, the idea here is supreme blessedness from the hand of God. So in the course of us displaying these attitudes and behaviors in our lives, it will put us in position to be able to express, to experience rather, all that God has to offer us here on earth, as well as in the life to come. And so we're talking about the most blessed we could ever possibly be comes through us following these things. If you want God's blessing, if you want to experience God's blessing in this world and the world to come when we meet him, these things are hugely important in our lives. And the first one he says here is blessed are the poor in spirit. So what does he mean by the poor in spirit? Well, the idea here is like spiritual poverty, meaning It's a recognition that we cannot exist apart from God's presence in our lives. It's like God's here and we're a beggar clinging to him, pleading, let me stay attached to you because I need you. I can't go on without you. I can't exist apart from you. You are my only hope to do anything in this world. This is the idea of being poor in spirit. And this is, interestingly, this is what's required for a person even to enter into a relationship with Jesus. But it's also something that's required for the Christian who already has made that decision to, be, to have any hope whatsoever of having a victory in their life, of actually accomplishing that task for which we've been called by the Lord. Now, think about this from the perspective of a non-Christian. Why is being poor in spirit, this attitude, I'm in desperate need of the Lord, why is this required for salvation? Here's why. When a person recognizes their sinfulness... They, they see God for who he is, right? A holy God who is perfect, who demands perfection, and we see our sin for what it is, and we, and we recognize that, boy, what could I possibly do to ever get myself restored in a good relationship with God? Well, maybe I should work really hard at being good. Well, sorry, the Bible says that's not good enough. Well, maybe I'll, 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 I'll I don't know, Maybe I'll give to the poor and, and, and maybe I'll I'll do this and that, or maybe I'll try to compensate in some various ways. No. It doesn't work that way. See, a person who is poor in spirit recognizes that it is only by the grace of God that I can be saved. I can do nothing in my own power. It's not me that gets me saved. It's only through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a belief that God sent His Son to this world to go to a cross to die for my sin. He was buried and rose again three days later, and because of that truth, I now have access to God the Father through that. And so I come to God through prayer and I plead with Him. I recognize I'm a Center. i need your grace i need your forgiveness forgive me of my sin jesus come into my life be my lord be my savior because you are my only hope i can't do it on my own you get it that's pouring spirit for the unbeliever that's how salvation comes it's his recognition without him i am lost but that same truth is true for us as christians as well what what gets us saved is also necessary not to keep us saved but to help us be effective in our walk with god Because have you noticed when you try to do things in your own power, and your own strength, you always end up falling on your face? I know I do. I get really dirty sometimes because of my, you know, I I tried tried to do it on my own again. So it's this idea that we're always constantly, continually attached to him, knowing that my only hope is for you to lead me every step of my life. And the promise that follows the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Now, this is literal in a sense because we're, we're going to be there someday, right? We're going to be in the presence of God forever, but it also, I believe, means access to kingdom, heavenly kingdom authority right now in the present. If you think about what Jesus told Peter, really speaking to the church in Matthew sixteen nineteen, he told him, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He's like, you have heavenly authority as my people. You have access to power that you have no idea what's available to you, right? I mean, this is, this, this is the access that we have. We see this again in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, right before Jesus went to heaven, right? What did he tell them? He says, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and what's going to happen? You will receive power. So as Christians, when we are attached to him, we have access to heavenly power to do God's work right now in the present. Poor spirit. Which leads us then to the second one in verse 4 which he says, blessed are those who mourn. Now what you're going to notice about these is they're very progressive in nature. Mourn here, I'm not talking about being a whiner or crying for for no particular reason, right? That's not what we're talking about here. The idea here is inward godly sorrow over sin. Inly godward sorrow over evil and the effects of sin and evil that that they've had on the world around us and the effects that it has even on God. Himself. Do you realize that sin gets its definition by God? God being holy, when we sin, it's, it's a direct offense against the holiness and the righteous character of God. It's direct rebellion against Holy God of heaven. That's what sin is really defined as. So no matter what we do, I mean, if, if, if I'd go over and smack Tyler in the nose, right? Yeah, I mean, I sinned against him. But guess who I sinned against first? The Lord. Psalm fifty-one, four. This is David speaking when he he did a bad thing uh, against you and you alone. He says to God, "I have sinned and done evil in your sight." He recognized that his sin first went against the holy God in heaven before it was a sin affects the Lord. It has affected his creation, his perfect creation. Sin has destroyed so much of it, and not only that. But sin is the reason that he had to send Jesus to this earth. Sin is the reason he had to have Jesus nailed to a cross and inflict all the sins of the world and put them on him. God's wrath went on his son because of sin. Sin affects God in heaven. And so it's this recognition recognition of what sin really is in our life and it brings us to the state of, of mourning, of inward godly sorrow that we look at it and then see it in our lives and then recognize that, man, my sin has hurt the Lord. I can't have this in my life. This has no place in my life. So therefore, God... Help me to get rid of it. It's the idea of repentance, right? We're, we're turning away. We're going this way, and we know we're living a life that we shouldn't, and we say, God, I can't have those things in my life. i got to go your way because I don't want to hurt you. It's an inward mourning over our sin, but it's not only that, because the effects of sin doesn't just affect God. It just doesn't affect us. Sin has affected the people around us as well. And it really is a godly sorrow over the effects of, that, that sin has had on this world and the, the effect that sin will have on people for eternity if they don't come to faith in Jesus. All the devastation we see in the world, the hurt, the pain, the suffering, the grief, the disease, the sickness, the hate, the people taking advantage of one another, one another etc., is all a result of the curse of sin. And ultimately, the curse of sin will end people in eternity of separation from God in a place called hell. That, that's the effects of sin. There should be something in us that mourns over that. When we see people that are around us that don't know Christ as Savior, if we gra- grasp and understand their future, that should bring sorrow in the inside of us. And it says the promise of this is they will be comforted. The comfort, of, the comfort comes in the promises of the Lord. There's an assurance that although sin has had a great deal of effect negatively on this world, there's going to be a day where sin's curse is going to be broken. There's going to be a day that God will make things right again. It's going to be taken away. There's just comfort in that. And there's also comfort in knowing that when we do mess up, because we're going to do it even as Christians, we're going to fail daily right? There, there's an assurance that when we come in faith to the Lord and ask him to forgive us, he will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, as First John 1, 9 says. That brings comfort to us when we truly mourn over sin, right? So we're, we're clinging to the Lord, we recognize sin, and we're mourning over it. That leads us to the next one, then in verse 5, where it says, blessed are the humble. Do you think humility is important in the Christian walk? What I love about this verse here is it's also translated meek. Now, meekness seems to be like, you you think of meekness like you think like a meek little mouse, right? Not the idea. The idea here is, is power under control. Picture a horse that has a bit in its mouth whose reins are in the hands of the rider. You have immense power, and yet it's under control by the one whose hands the reins are in. You, you get the picture? So the idea here spiritually is us looking at God and saying, I know that in my own I'm going to fall. I'm going to fail. I'm going to do things wrong. I can never accomplish what it is you've called me to do on my own. So Lord, here's the bit. You take the reins and you guide me. You lead me in every aspect of my life because without you, I will fail. Without you, there's no possible way that I can ever do the things that you have called me to do. The opposite of humility is pride. Pride is where we think that I got this. I'm strong enough. I'm smart enough. I'm wise enough. I'm good enough to do things on my own. You know the problem with that is? Uh, James chapter 4, verses 6 through 10 that says, God resists the proud. I'm going to stop there for a second. When we're prideful, God resists that. And it limits us, it will inhibit us from doing His work. Instead, we're going to receive God's discipline instead of God's power so humility is so important he says but he gives grace to the humble therefore submit to God resist the devil and he will flee Do you realize in our humility clinging to Jesus recognizing that he has the reins of my life we can even dispel Satan from our lives it says Satan will flee from us because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world amen It says in verse 8, draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. It goes on to say, cleanse your hand, you sinners, purify your heart, you double-minded, lament and mourn and weep, let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. It's this idea that we are constantly in a state of, I need you, Lord. I can't go without you. You take the reins, you lead me. You guide me, and through that I'll have victory, right? And so that, that's where we're at so far. And the promise with here is that you will inherit, it says, the earth. Well, I don't want to inherit this earth. You know what the good thing is? Well, there, there is an aspect of earthly blessing now, right? Psalm 37, 11 says the humble will inherit the land, will enjoy abundant prosperity, Right? Can I tell you something? And if you're in the workplace, you understand this. If you're working with somebody, if, if you, it's like you know they're a Christian, and they're a man of character and integrity, a man of humility, a woman of humility, and they work hard. Isn't there just natural blessing that comes from that? Generally speaking, naturally, they're successful. Nationally, they excel in the workplace. I mean, there's earthly blessing that comes with this, right? But really, I believe this is talking about future blessing because Revelation 21 and verse 1 talks about someday there's going to be a new earth. That this present one's going to pass away and the new one's going to be here and guess who's going to be here with this god himself will be in his presence forever and ever and i can assure you that will be an incredible blessing but then it leads us down to verse 6 where it says blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness now what is righteousness literally it means moral rightness according to god's standard right so god's standard of perfection it's moral rightness in relation to that. Meaning our lives look like him. where the Bible says, be holy as he is holy. That's what righteousness, what's where it kind of comes from. The question is, is how does one become righteous practically in their lives, right? There's There's a... there's a side of this where we are given the righteousness of Christ, that's salvation, and we're perfect before the Lord, but practically in our lives, there's this process of sanctification, meaning we're not looking like Jesus quite yet. We still have ugly things in our lives that need to be get rid of, so step by step, day by day, year by year, God has molding us and shaping us into the image of Christ. That's what I'm talking about here, hungering and thirsting for, for that, to look like Jesus more and more. How does that come about? Well, can I can tell you something that doesn't happen naturally. It happens through effort on our part as we get into the word of God. And we see how we see how we're supposed to live. We see what right looks like. And we begin making the choices in our life to choose to walk in this way. Psalm 19 and verse 9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure only by keeping? god's word psalm one nineteen eleven says i've hidden your word in my heart that i might not sin against you literally it means um i have hidden i have treasured your word it's kind of the idea treasuring the word of god in our hearts will lead us to a life where we're not sinning like we used to Romans 12 and verse 2 tells us, don't be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can prove what is God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. How does one's mind be transformed? Only through the word of God. We have to be in this. And so the idea here where it says that we should hunger and thirst for this righteousness, it's not like, yeah, I had breakfast this morning and my tummy's rumbling a little bit. That's not what it's talking about. It's like you haven't eaten in a week, and you're completely famished. You're completely starving, and I need this. You're craving something, right? This is kind of the idea when it comes to this. Thirsting is like we're wandering around in, in the desert, and we're desperate for water. And this is the picture that the Lord Jesus gives us here when it comes to righteousness and seeking after likeness in our life. It's the idea, without God's Word, I will starve spiritually. Without His Word, I will be famished and will not be able to go on. Without His Word, I will certainly perish just kind of the idea in, in psalm that we give us we have a few few verses that we kind of talk about this in psalm 42 verses 1 and 2 listen to this it says as the deer longs for flowing streams of water so i long for you god I thirst for God, the living God. When can I come up before you? I mean, you get this picture of, like a, of a deer coming thirsty. He's longing for the Lord. In Psalm 63 and verse 1, the psalmist says, God, you are my God. I eagerly seek you. I thirst for you. My body faints for you in a land that is dry and desolate and without water. I mean, it's this idea we, just, we are desperately in need of God. Seeking him like one seeking water walking through a desert. And the promise is that those that do this will be filled. It's the idea of being fulfilled, the idea of being completely satisfied. Psalm 34 and verse 8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. And can I tell you something? There's something about this that is so true because there is nothing like a close, intimate walk with Jesus. Nothing else compares everything else falls short when we're connected with the lord when you if you have been in that place you know what i'm talking about where you feel like he's he's right here arm in arm with you i can tell you that god is better than money better than fame better than prosperity or any other worldly pleasure that is here they can never ever satisfy like the lord can satisfy you want to know why heaven is going to be so great because we're going to be in the presence of him It's not the streets of gold. It's not the walls made out of incredible jewels. It's going to be cool to see, but that's not what's going to be so great about it. The greatest fulfillment we'll ever experience in all of eternity will come when we finally see our Lord and Savior face to face. It will be the most exhilarating, the most exciting, the most amazing experience we've ever experienced in our life, and it will last for eternity. Praise God. We get down to verse 7. And he says, Blessed are the merciful. So we're desperate for the Lord. We recognize sin for what it is. We're walking in humility. We're giving Jesus the reins of our life. We're seeking Christ's likeness in our life. We want to walk in his ways. And then it leads us to this place where mercy coming from us is both called and should be displayed and can only be displayed as we've done these other things. So, blessed are the merciful. What does that mean? What is is mercy? The definition of mercy is withholding a well-deserved punishment. And so the idea here, what Jesus is saying is, we are extending to others what has been extended to us first and foremost, by the Lord. Have you, have you th- how often do you think about what God has saved you from? You know, the, the Bible tells us in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. Physical death and eternal spiritual death as well. In, in Revelation 20, it gives us picture of the final judgment of mankind. Standing before the great white throne of God, and it says that earth and heaven are going to uh, flee away, that they're, they're going to be no more. There's this picture of all the dead, great and small, standing before the throne of God. These books are open, one of them being the books of life, and every single person is going to be judged according to the works and deeds of their lives that they did in this life and there's nobody going to escape, and the sea gives up their dead, the grave gives up all their dead, all stand there, they're going to be judged according to their works, it says. And here's the only way you get to enter through the gate of heaven is if your name is written down in that book. Everybody else... It says there in the last verse, we'll be cast into what's known as the fiery furnace, the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. I know that's grim, I know that sounds horrible, but friends, there's a way out, his name's Jesus, and it's really, really easy. But let me tell you something, that was who we were. That was, is what every single one of us in here were headed for one day. But, if you've met Jesus, something changed. Now, if you know Christ, think about what you've been saved from. Consider Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. The first three verses are who we were, and then we get to the beautiful verse in verse 4. It says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, of which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the rule of the power of the air, speaking of Satan, the spirit now working in the disobedience. So all the people in this world that are not saved are controlled by Satan. And it says, we too, all of us, previously lived among them in our flesh, Fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under God's wrath, as all the others were also. That was our state. But verse four says, "But God." But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in our trespasses. You were saved by grace and he also raised him up, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display his immeasurable riches of grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So we who are his enemies not only have been saved, we have a place in heaven where forever and ever and ever, God God's kindness and mercy is going to be displays, displayed in ways we could ever possibly think. The Bible says that no eye has seen, no ear has heard what awaits us who know Christ as our Savior. In heaven, pleasures beyond our wildest dreams. And so, this attitude here is blessed. Or the merciful. It's it's this recognition that man, I'm an awful, dirty sinner. I recognize that because I've mourned over it already. And look what Jesus has done for me. He's forgiven me. He's wiped my sins clean. The slate of all the death that I've accumulated in my life has been erased. And he says he has chosen to forget it and remember it no more. All because he loved me. I didn't deserve it. And therefore, I've received such incredible grace and mercy that no matter what anybody does to me, no matter how evil or how bad they are, they deserve mercy from me because I've received mercy far greater than any mercy I will ever be able to display myself. That's what it's talking about. And the promise is that we'll be shown mercy by the Lord. I think I said this last week. The Bible says that God does not make us pay for every single sin that we do. Praise his name. It's this idea that we reap what we sow, and and can I tell you something? God does discipline, and if we are living our lives as Christians in an unmerciful way towards others, there will be discipline, heavenly discipline, coming our way, so it's important that we recognize this, right? But then it leads us to verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart. The idea here is unhypocritical, authentic, living a life that enables a clear conscience before both God and man. So we're clinging to Jesus. We recognize sin. We're, we're holding on to him for all over the world. Jesus, take the reins of my life. I'm seeking after Christ's likeness, righteousness in my life. I'm, I'm showing mercy to the people around me. And, Lord, I want to walk pure before you. I don't want to give Satan any stronghold in my life. I don't want to give him anything that he can use against me or against what you want to do through me life. So, therefore, Lord, I want to walk in purity both before you and before people. Before him, this whole idea is just, we're constantly confessing sin daily. We look at his word, we read it, applying it to our lives, making sure that we are here. We're connected. There's nothing hindering our walk with the Lord, but this is so important when it comes to the people around us because we need to live a life of purity before the people around us. Why? Why? You know, one of the greatest hindrances to people coming in faith, to faith in Christ, is Christians, because we're living. Not we. I'm not blaming. us. Uh, I'm just saying. In general, so many people who claim they know Christ, as Savior, live lives that look nothing like it. And Christians, people say about Christians. I don't. If I'm, if I'm, a, if I have to be a hypocrite, I surely don't want to be one of those this whole idea here is it it removes an obstacle for people that are watching we walk in purity we walk in holiness and when we deal with people we deal with pure motives we consider other people in our, when we're doing our dealings in life, not just what benefits us. We deal with people with honesty and integrity. We seek the good of others, as Paul said in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not just for his own interest, but rather for the interest of others as well. So we're walking in a period because we understand that our life is reflecting him. What people think of Jesus, they're looking at us and getting a picture of him. So what picture are we showing them? We need to walk in a pure of heart before the Lord, and the promise is that you will see God. And again, I believe this is both literal and figurative. There's going to be a day where we see him face to face, but figurative in the sense that when we are living like this, we will see God move through our lives. We will see God do amazing things in and through us. Which then leads us to this last one. Notice the progression: cling to Jesus, mourning over sin, walk in humility. Jesus has the reins of my life. I'm I'm hungering and thirst, thirsting to, to walk in righteousness, just like Jesus. I'm showing mercy. I'm walking in purity to the best of my ability, and now it puts me in a position to be a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers for what? They will be called what? Notice what it says. Sons of God. You know what the greatest call in our life is? Is to walk like Jesus walked. To live like Jesus lived. To think like Jesus thinked. We're called to model Jesus in all things because he is our greatest example. So we're, if we're supposed to model Jesus in all things, it just seems natural that being a peacemaker is one of those things. Literally, this means being a mediator between two parties. We're we're mediating peace between two sides is kind of the idea here. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5 says, there is one God, one mediator between God and mankind, the man who is Jesus Christ. So if he was a mediator of peace, what should we be? A mediator of peace as well between two parties. Well, what are these two parties? Well, sometimes it's Christians and Christians, Sometimes Christians have conflict they can't can't figure out. So what's Matthew 18 tells us? It tells us that bring two or three others with you, and they they can become mediators of peace between these two parties, right? There's one natural aspect of it. Think about worldly conflict. Who should be a peacemaker? If you're going to have any voice of reason in conflicts in the world, who do you want? Somebody controlled by Satan or somebody controlled by the Lord? Naturally, I mean, I don't know about you, but I want somebody controlled by Jesus because they have his wisdom, they have his knowledge, right? And so that's another natural thing. But, but here's the big one. Here's the big one. It's us being peacemakers between God and people who don't know him. This is the call. We're the mediator between the lost and the Lord. This is exactly what Jesus did for us. Colossians 1. 19 through 22. God, in all of his fullness, was pleased to live in Christ, and through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He, Jesus, made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by the means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death on the cross in his physical body. And as a result, he has now brought you into his own presence. And you are now holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Jesus mediated us. He was the mediator between us when we were a sinner and his heavenly father in heaven. His death on the cross was our way of making peace with God. I've already explained that, right? And so we have the exact same call as God's people. Second Corinthians chapter five and verse eighteen says that God has given us the us the task of reconciling people to him. So just like Jesus was the mediator between man and God, we who are in Christ, we who know him as Savior, have been given that exact same job. We are the mediator between people who are lost and helping them be restored in relationship with a holy God. And that only comes through us sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. As Romans 1.16 is the only power unto salvation. What's the gospel? It's the message of Christ. His life, death, and resurrection. That's our message. There's power in that message. 2 Corinthians 5, 20 tells us we're ambassadors for Christ. God is pleading through us on Christ's behalf for people to be reconciled to him. Romans 10 tells us that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard of him? And how can they hear unless somebody tells them? Who's supposed to tell them? If you know Jesus, that's you. And that's me. That's our job, right? Now, so we're, we're peacemakers, right? That, le- everything leads to that. But can I tell you something? Look at verse 10. This word doesn't get all that fun. It says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. So we're, we're trying to walk in purity and holiness and righteousness, trying to, to do God's work and reconcile people to him. But then it says persecution is going to be the result. But here's the thing, if we're called to model Jesus in all things, yes, it means living a righteous life. Yes, it means being a mediator between God and people. But it also means following his example of suffering at times to accomplish it because who knows that Jesus didn't accomplish what he did without suffering. He suffered greatly in what he accomplished for us. See, these beatitudes, these attributes, and the attitudes of Jesus, Jesus is saying, follow my lead. But if we follow my lead, ask yourself, what did that get him? What, what did the life of Christ that he lived, what did it get him? Well, people cast insults at him. They accused him falsely of things that he never did. They, they, they called him a prince of demons controlled by Satan, they treated him badly, they mocked him, they abused him, they ultimately arrested him, beat him, and murdered him. That stinks. Good for us, but it's strong for him. But the thing is, is if we choose to display those attributes, those attitudes in our lives... Do you think that it's possible that we could experience some of the same things in our lives? Would he really call us to that? John 15 and verse 20, Jesus told his followers, if they persecute me, they will also persecute you because of me. And what does he say in verse 11? You're blessed when they, not if, when they insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And here's a serious question we need to ask ourselves to the very depths of our soul. Is if that comes to reality in our lives, are we willing to endure it for his cause? Are we willing to endure suffering and ridicule and mocking? Even if it someday means our death, are we willing to give it if it means bringing him glory, if it means reaching the people around us Helping them escape hell and instead gain heaven. Is it worth it? Will we do it? What I can tell you is this. Is if verse 3 through 9 are not in our lives? The answer will be no. However, when we're walking that way, the answer will be yes. We'll be able to endure in that day if that day is. Comes, but even if that day comes, I want to remind you of the blessing and the promise of verse twelve. It says, "Be glad and rejoice." How can we be glad and rejoice about that? Because great is your reward in heaven. We'll be rewarded someday for it. He says, "For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you." Not only will we be in good company if we suffer for righteousness' sake, but there will also be an incredible heavenly reward attached to our suffering. When we suffer for Christ, we're in good company. The prophets Isaiah, and Jeremiah and Hosea, you think about how they suffered. You think about how Peter and Paul and, and John suffered for the Lord. You think about the incredible treasures they have for suffering. When you suffer for Jesus, we are included in that company. He will look at you and me the same way he looked at the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul and all these people throughout the Bible, we who stood strong in the faith for his testimony. And his reward. Romans 8, 16, and 17, the Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit. We are God's children, and if children, and also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. So what's the promise of those who are persecuted? The kingdom of heaven is theirs. You get it? Co-heirs with Christ, all that belongs to Jesus belongs to you and me, if we're willing to do what it takes to get there. So as we come to a close on this. I know i got a few verses left, but as we think about these beatitudes, other than the fact that we should do them, because Jesus said so, because we want to glorify him, let me talk about the real big reason that we should. And it's because all the people around us, around us that don't know Jesus. Because our call are to be lights of this world. Now notice verse 13, what Jesus says here. He gave us all his instructions to say this, you are the salt of the earth what in the world does you mean by that? You are the salt of the earth. Well, to understand this, we need to understand the importance of salt in the culture a couple thousand years ago. Yes, it was used to season whatever they were eating, but that's not really, I don't believe what it's talking about here. The big thing salt was used for was a preservative because they didn't have refrigeration. And so if they were going to preserve fish or preserve meat or whatever that would. They, they would, they would have to pack it in salt as a preservation measure so that it wouldn't rot and, and spoil. Listen to what Tony Evans, um, preacher Tony Evans says about this. I love this. Before the advent of refrigeration, people used salt to preserve food. Salting, and it says, salting down a piece of meat slowed the decaying process. Notice that Jesus didn't tell them, you are the salt of the shaker, like a salt shaker. Since it's under the curse of sin, the earth is like a decaying piece of meat, and the salt can't preserve the meat if it stays in the salt shaker. You get it? We are the salt of earth. We're supposed to be salting, preserving the world around us. Notice the second part of verse 13. But if the salt should lose its taste... How can it be made salty? Again, the literal translation of this is how can the world, the earth, be salted again? It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Listen to what John MacArthur, the the commentator, says about this. Pure salt cannot lose its effectiveness. But the salt that is common in the Dead Sea area, where these people were at the time, is contaminated with gypsum and other minerals and may have a flat taste or be ineffective in a preservative as a preservative, such mineral or such salts were used for a little more than keeping footpaths free of vegetation. So it was, it was contaminated salt in this area. So Jesus used this illustration for a reason, because a lot of the salt was contaminated, and the only thing it was used for were for footpaths, so weeds didn't grow up, right? And so you get the spiritual picture that Jesus is saying here. He's saying, we're the salt of the earth, but if we're contaminated with sin, if we're contaminated by worldly passions and worldly desires, if we're contaminated by the things we're chasing after in this life, we will be of no effect when it comes to doing any good for his kingdom. Essentially, our lives spiritually will be absolutely worthless when it comes to making a difference in other people's lives. Which is why walking in purity before the Lord is so vital and so important. And when we do, it enables, us. verse 14 says, to be the lights of the world. Notice the connection here. It says in verse 15, no one lights a light and puts it under a basket, No, they put it up in a lampstand, so it gives light to the whole room. Right? So think of candle. You stick a candle, you don't put it under a basket on the floor. No, you set it up high, so it gives light to the whole room. The point is that we're supposed to shine boldly for Christ. There are no closet Christians. There's no secret agent Christians, as Tony Evans would usually put it, right? No, we're supposed to be bold, not fearful, and cowardly. And I love the picture of this because you think about an individual lamp. Think about an individual lamp as an individual Christian. Now look at the what it talks about how we're supposed to be like a city that's up on the hill. How many houses does the city have? How many rooms does the city have? tons and tons and tons and so how much of a difference is one candle lit in the darkness compared to an entire city full of candles lit where it lights up an entire mountainside and it glows so the whole world can see do you get the picture what jesus is calling us to do because said in verse 16 in the same way let your light shine he's saying to every single one of us it takes us all It takes every single one of us being the people that he has called us to be, living the life of honor and and, and righteousness that we're called to be. And as we do that, as we follow these things, we'll be shining brightly for Christ. And as we do this together, light will dispel the darkness, and light will expose what the darkness is hiding. And the people in this world who are lost and dying and on their way to eternal destruction will be awakened and see the truth. But it depends on you, and it depends on me. I asked you at the beginning, what is the greatest need in the world today? I will tell you, based on what we just read, the greatest need is Christians who are both showing Jesus with their lives and sharing Jesus with their lips to a lost and dying world that is around us. If we want to see change in this world, in our country, in our state, it starts here. Let's shine the light of Christ. Let's change our neighborhoods. Let's change our workplaces. Let's change our county. From there, let's move out and change the state. Let's change the nation. And as Christians all around the world do this, if we do this, the light will dispel the darkness and we can see change. But it depends on us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge of it, Lord God, and just even the encouragement that even though things are dark, God, there's hope through you. God, give us the ability and the strength and the power to walk in your ways to be the people you've called us to be. And Heavenly Father, I would just pray also for anybody in this place that's has never made a decision to follow Christ as Savior. God, I've shared the gospel tonight but it's up to them to respond. And I just pray, Lord, uh, that sometime the night before they would leave, that they would just call out to you, even if it's just in the quiet of their mind, and just confess their sin and call on Jesus to be the Savior of their, of their lives. And I just pray that you, would, that you would do that. You would meet them right where they're at and reveal yourself to them, Father. God, just uh, be glorified through us, through us as individuals and us as your church. And through us, God, help us to be effective in reaching our community for you. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As we close tonight, we are going to sing a